Files. This week, we are discussing 707, A Practical Guide for Time Travelers. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all kinds of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and 8, as well as Blood of My Blood, Men in Kilts, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 7, Episode 7, A Practical Guide for Time Travelers. So apparently this was not a popular episode amongst the fandom, which came as quite a shock to me, honestly, because I loved this episode, hands down. There were so many fantastic creative choices that were made, the acting was fabulous, and I felt like the writing was very well done as well. So I just thought it was a perfect storm of creative energy for the episode. Now granted, Next week's episode that we're going to talk about is better, of course, because it's the mid-season finale, but this episode was firing on all cylinders as far as I was concerned. I mean, it even goes so far as to have a really good title card, in my opinion, because it's the Tufty Fluffy Tail badge that every member of the club has, and that goes way back to season five, where Roger and Bree are talking about the Tufty Club, and he's a squirrel that talks about road safety, which is kind of like the American Smokey the Bear. It's one of those things where they build on the mythology and refer back to themselves, and I really liked that idea because it becomes relevant within the story, but it's also like, oh yeah, I remember that. Very strong out of the starting gate, in my opinion. We actually started with a cold open with Jamie and Claire So I'm going to start with Jamie and Claire this episode just to kind of start us off on the right foot, so to speak, because a lot of stuff happens. And unlike last week where Jamie and Claire's storyline was kind of intertwined with William and Ian and all of that, we have three very distinct stories going on this episode. So we have Jamie and Claire, Roger, Bree, Buck, and Rob, and then we have William, Sandy, and all of that. So. Three very distinct stories going on, lots of balls up in the air that we're juggling, but I feel like they did a phenomenal job. And so we start right out of the gate with a letter from Claire to Brie. You know, I've said it a million times, and I feel like they're just doing this right with tying the storylines together. We've got Claire writing Brie, and it's connecting the 18th century with the 20th century in a physical sense, but you've also got these little tie-ins with... Claire telling Brie about William. So it's not only Jamie and Claire's storyline and Brie and Roger's storyline, but that's how they're bringing William into the fold as well. When Claire mentions running into William, you see this pain on Brie's face. Like she misses her parents so much, but you also have to think that on a level, it's painful for Claire that William exists and can't know who he is and he also his very presence reminds her of her daughter 
And so that's a very emotional experience for her. But then on Bree's side of things, her mom is getting to meet and interact with her brother in a way that she never will. Bree has always wanted a sibling in her life, and now she has one, but she can't have a relationship with him. And for her, that must be really emotional as well. You've got this really big topic of discussion going on in this letter that's linking all three of these storylines. So I thought that it was a very good way to kind of start off this episode and present the paperwork, so to speak, of what was going to be in this episode. When you're looking at the letter, yes, that links Brie and Claire together, and it's a fantastic tool to use. But there's also different things that link the stories. It's in something as simple as clothing. In this scene where Claire is writing Brie, she's actually wearing Brie's shirt. And we see a lot of this after the fire on Fraser's Ridge. Jamie and Claire are utilizing some of Brie and Roger's old clothes that they left behind. And so I really liked that whenever we get to Claire writing Brie and talking about how much she misses her and everything, she's literally doing everything she can to keep her daughter close, even wearing her clothes. Likewise, Jamie gets a really cool new costume this episode with the Rifleman shirt, which is just such a unique and iconic piece of the American Revolution, that linen shirt with fringe on it. It's one of those things that when you think about the 18th century and the kinds of clothes that they wore, that's not on the top of the list. But then when you see Jamie and you're like, oh, yeah, can't believe I forgot about that. One thing that I noticed with this outfit, and it's not necessarily that this is a new piece to his costume or anything, but with that white linen shirt, seeing all of his weaponry, like his powder horn and his knife, all of that is very much on display against the white linen of his shirt. He's really decked out. I'm assuming at this point he's been either on patrol or picket duty or something of the sort, scouting the area. And then he finds this book down by the creek. This is one thing that I absolutely love about this episode, and I'm going to drive it home time and time again because it really stood out to me. The humor. Margot Yee, who wrote this episode, did a fantastic job of incorporating Diana Gabaldon's original dialogue, but also making new stuff, and she weaves it so flawlessly into the story I think I laughed more in this episode than I have in a long time in Outlander, and it felt really good. It just felt like a nice hug or like a warm cup of coffee on a cold day. Just comfortable. We don't often get that in Outlander. I think a lot of the writers are very good at writing the drama of it all, but writing comedy is not their strong suit. And so to have a writer on this show that can do it and do it seamlessly just really tickles my fancy. I admire that so much, and I'm glad they finally got somebody who can. And, you know, like I said, a lot of this scene with the spectacles is straight out of the book. So I can't give all the credit to Margot Yee because Diana Gabaldon is a master of writing comedy into seriousness. But I have seen instances like we look at season six with the Indian lassies and them trying to sleep with Jamie. In the books, that was absolutely hilarious. In the show, it was not adapted well 
and it fell flat and I just I didn't laugh. There are definitely instances where they can take funny scenarios from the books and it still doesn't work. So it does take a talent to get the circumstances right in the show to have it have the same effect and hit the same. So this scene was absolutely one of those moments where Jamie finds a book on the side of the creek and he says, I found you something, Sassanac. And he holds it out to her and she's like, a book? And he (laughs) pulls it back and he's like, I printed words on paper. You remember the sort of thing. (laughs) And right then and there, you just know that it's going to be your classic Jamie and Claire, lighthearted, very comfortable and domestic moment. And I love how even the little scenes like this age our characters a little bit more over the course of the season and the series. One of the chief complaints from pretty much everybody is that Jamie and Claire just don't look as old as they should in the show. Part of that has to do with the fact that you've got actors that are in their 40s that are portraying people that are in their late 50s, early 60s at this point. It's going to happen. We're not going to recast Sam Hewen and Katrina Balfe, and you can only put so much makeup on them before you just run into a scenario that's unrealistic. It just is more distracting than anything. So having these little conversations where they're talking about how Claire can't read the book and Jamie just kind of shyly, you know, like, I don't want to mention this and get my head bit off, but Sassnack, you need glasses. <laughs> She's like, no, I don't. And he's like, read this. And she says, well, how am I supposed to read that? It's impossibly small type. And he just looks at her and says, it's 12 point Caslin. Like, Jesus, Claire, don't you know it's 12 point Caslin? Like, Jamie, your printer's showing. <laughs> it's just a really cute scene. And it leads into Jamie talking about when this war's over and we go back to Scotland, a pair of spectacles for every day of the week and gold ones for Sundays. Like, he just has these grand ideas of this life that he's going to give Claire Once they get to Scotland, then that kind of morphs into, but before we get to Scotland, we've got this other hurdle to jump, which is the battle that's looming over everybody's heads. There's rumor that in three days time, they're going to muster and all of this, but nobody really knows what's going on at this point. It's a lot of hurry up and wait, which is fairly typical for the military, and that has not changed at all. Right now, nobody really knows what's going to happen, but Jamie has enough experience with war, as does Claire, to know that eventually this is going to come to a head and it's going to be a massive battle of some sort. So he says, well, you don't have to read the Bible with your new gold spectacles, but a wee prayer wouldn't come amiss. (laughs) And it's just cute. The whole scene, front to back. And when Claire sits on his lap and cups his face and says, you'll come back to me. You always do. And if you don't, I'll come looking for you. It's a promise that she ends up having to keep, but it's wonderful sentiment nonetheless. There's so much about this episode that had so many callbacks to previous seasons. And this is one of them because in the very first season, when Jamie gets ready to go with the watch to do that raid, he's standing out in the hall with her while Jenny's talking to Ian. And she says, come back to me, James Fraser. If you don't, I'll come looking for you and I'll drag you back by your thick red curls and you won't like it one bit. That's one of my favorite scenes of season one. And both of these scenes lead into this slow motion effect that we get that was the beginning of my extreme 
unease that I feel every time I see something in slow motion now. That scene in season one ends with Jamie walking away in slow motion, and we all know what happened there. It just snowballed into the big thing that ended up being Wentworth Prison. And in this episode, it's not the you'll come back to me, you always do. That doesn't directly lead into the slow motion, but the other scene that we get in the episode with Jamie and Claire where they have this good epic goodbye that has become tradition at this point leads into him walking away in slow motion and you just know nothing good can come of this. And it also creates this astounding sense of unease whenever we see how uneasy Jamie is. He's fought in a lot of wars, and while I'm sure he still gets nervous because how could you not, he's not generally concerned about this, I could die today. And you see that in him. For some reason, something is telling him that something is going to happen here. And it makes the viewer uneasy because, I mean, look at Alamance. He says that famous line, someday we will part, but it will not be today. That gives Claire a sense of comfort in a way in his certainty that today is not going to be the day we part for the final time. But he doesn't have those words of comfort for her now. Something is troubling him. And you can see that in the way that he looks at the ground and grits his teeth and then turns and walks away after they kiss. Like he has to steal himself to go to war. And we don't typically see that out of Jamie. So that's very unusual. So, I mean, it leads directly into this cliffhanger ending that's very typical of Outlander penultimate episodes. Granted, this is the penultimate episode for the mid-season finale, but it might as well be a finale, right? Because eight episodes is all we got, period, in season six, and it's the first half of season seven with an indeterminate amount of time in between for part B. So it might as well have been a penultimate episode for the season as far as I'm concerned. And they treated it as such. They knew that they were going to take a break between part A and part B right here between episodes eight and nine. So they purposefully designed the season to ramp up to that. And that's something that Matt Roberts talked a lot about in the official podcast for this episode, how they designed this episode and really the season in general to be this giant roller coaster ride where there are moments when you can't catch your breath, followed by an episode where you just feel this innate sense of anticipation as you click up the track towards the top of the hill. And that's what this episode was intended to be. I don't necessarily know that I would call this a slow paced ticking up the hill episode because honestly, a lot happened and then it was left on a cliffhanger for you to finish the ride next week, so to speak. The episode ending the way that it did with Jamie laying on the ground unconscious on the battlefield just really didn't surprise me at all. I have yet to talk to somebody about this episode where they were surprised by the ending because they made the very conscious decision to put this shot in the trailer for the season. Those of us who have read the books knew that this was Saratoga where he got hurt. Whenever we found out that this episode was the first battle of Saratoga following episode six, it was kind of the natural next step to we're like, oh, this is the penultimate episode before we go off the air for a little bit. So it's going to end on a cliffhanger. It's going to end with Jamie potentially in peril, lying unconscious on the battlefield. That's just where it's going to end. And that's just the natural place to end it. So I can't fault 
the showrunners for ending it there, even though I abhor cliffhangers. It's like a personal pet peeve of mine, but I get it. Like, I love writing them, hate reading them, hate watching them. Like, I get the love-hate on it so much. So, like I said, Jamie and Claire's story was very short and sweet this week. Not to say that it didn't have its high points, because what we did get of Jamie and Claire was really good. And then next week, we spend the majority of the episode with Jamie and Claire. So again, you can't really be upset because we get plenty of Jamie and Claire next week. And the stories that were told in this episode were so good that I ain't mad about it. So next, we're going to kind of pop around. We're going to talk about Buck McKenzie, the Nuklevy. I said it last week, but honestly, I am so happy with Yarmid Murta being recast as Buck taking over for Graham McTavish because he's so good, guys. And we really saw that in this episode. He had a couple of really strong scenes. The first one for me was right out of the gate when he's talking to Brian and Roger and telling them the story of how he came through the stones. He was explaining what it felt like, like it was coming from his bones, this vibration. He thought it was going to kill him, that he wasn't going to make it. That visceral reaction that Bree and Roger have listening to Buck tell this story really tells Buck all he needs to know about like, no, it's not just him. It's everybody. And yes, they understand perfectly what he's saying. He internalizes everything and turns it over and mulls it out and really feels what he's saying. He's a very gut instinct actor. I feel like I just get that vibe from him. The role that he was most known for before he came to Outlander was Vikings, I think, was the show that he was in. One of those shows that I haven't had a chance to watch yet, but it's definitely on my watch list. So I'm very excited to see what the rest of the season holds for him because just off of these two episodes at the end of part A, I've seen a lot of good things from him and I'm very excited to see where he takes the character. Something that we have to think about when we're talking about Buck McKenzie. He is one of those fascinating characters for me because this is a man that was pretty straightforward, the enemy, capital T, capital E, whenever we first met him in season five in The Fiery Cross. Whether you're looking at it from the book perspective or the show perspective, he was persona non grata with the Fraser clan. And if any of them had caught sight of him, they probably would have shot him on sight. This rehabilitation of his character that Diana manages to do and that the show replicates very well, I think, is amazing. It's so phenomenal because this is a man who got Roger hung and somehow by the end of the next episode, well, pretty much by the end of this episode, we love him. Like he's just another one of the family. Trying to wrap my head around how that works is just so crazy to me. Like, I guess I understand that he thought Roger was trying to steal his wife, okay? And it goes a long way towards the recovery of that character when we have that scene where he's kind of arguing with Roger about it. He's like, well, how am I supposed to feel? It's just not natural to not do anything when you see another man cootie into your wife, right? Bree tries to defend him and says... He was trying to warn you and then Buck is saying, but he's a militiaman and why would a militiaman help us? It pretty much defeats the purpose. And that's when Roger finally explains to this man, Morag and Buck are really Roger's five or six times great grandparents. 
So that's why Roger was trying to warn them. And it kind of all just clicks into place with Buck. And he immediately feels this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame, but also having like a, oh my God moment. And I love the line where he says, you wouldn't happen to have anything stronger than coffee, would you? <laughs> Again, with the comedy, right? And it's so deadpan, serious, but the line is fantastic and it's perfectly timed. Buck is a very complex character and you can't help but feel for the guy when you look at his situation and you realize this is the first time traveler that we know of in the Outlander universe that has traveled forward 200 years in time. When you look at time travel as a concept and try to fathom that and empathize with these people that are going back and forth unexpectedly and not by choice, it's hard enough to envision landing in a place that's outside of your time, outside of what you're used to. And when you look at what happened to Claire in season one, when she ended up in the 1740s, she at least had a basic knowledge of what was happening in history around her, what general practices were and how people behaved roughly. I'm not saying that she had a down pat because that took a long time for her. And she's still dealing with adapting to the 18th century. But she had a rough expectation of what life was like back then. You have someone who's from the 18th century that's thrown into the 20th century, and it's just flipping mind-blowing. Like, they might as well have landed on an alien planet for all the good their basic life skills do them, going 200 years into the future. He's talking about cars and calling them roaring carriages. The basic concepts of money aren't the same. The language and customs and cultures are very different 200 years from now, like they are going back and forth. So. Brie and Roger and Claire going to the 18th century experience that same cultural divide that somebody coming from the 18th century experiences going to the 20th. So I'm not saying that that's new by any means, but when you add all of that into the technological developments that Buck is seeing right in front of his eyes, it just must be so crazy. He doesn't even know what a flashlight is. And Roger hands it to him as they're running up the hill of Craig Nadoon. And he just looks at it like, what the hell is this? And Roger's like, it's a torch. Come on. You know, like, I don't have time to explain a flashlight to you. It's going to give you light in the dark. And that's all you need to know about it. So I do feel for Buck and this craziness that he's dealing with. There's a really great conversation that Buck has with Bree at the dam. He's looking around at the dam and everything that it stands for and accomplishes and then looking at the mountains and she said, it must look so different. He says, I, it does, but up there, like they're the same. And then he explains to her, it's not so much all of the small changes like the dam. It's the fact that his son, Jemmy, and like his wife, Morag, and the, the child that she was carrying, they're all dead and they've been dead for 200 years at this point experiencing that grief and trying to process that is a lot for any one person to handle. And I think that's the point where Brie realizes maybe he's not so bad because, you know, Roger has had the conversation with her about how he's forgiven Buck. There was a lot of miscommunication in the situation at Alamance and they've cleared the air and everything's lined out. Generally speaking, Buck is a very good person. It's just he has a temper and he kind 
kind of has a tendency to be a little crazy when he gets jealous. I mean, he's got a little bit of Dougal and a little bit of Galus in him. And when you wrap all that together in one package, it can kind of get hairy sometimes. So you got to give his genetic credit where credit is due. I mean, he he's got a lot to process and he's got a jealous streak for sure. But he's got a good heart for all of that. When he tells Bree that he's trying to deal with the fact that his children and his wife are dead, that strikes her because she's dealing with the exact same thing with trying to process the fact that her parents are dead. Those parallels are drawn a little bit at a time. In the previous scene between Buck and Bree where she's talking about how she's got a little bit of Scottish, her father's Scottish, she says his name is, was James Fraser. So she's still processing that. And then literally the next scene they have together, Buck mentions the grief he's experiencing over the loss of his family as well. They have a lot in common. And yes, Roger is a direct descendant of Buck, but Bree is also related to Buck because Buck is Jamie's cousin. It's all very convoluted, but I think it just goes to show that no character is ever a lost cause if the creator puts their minds to it. Because Buck was somebody that I would have said, nope, that ship sailed. I'm never forgiving him ever. And I actually really like him as a character. Remember how I said that he has a jealous streak? So whenever he tells Bree and Roger that he doesn't like Rob, that Rob's got an eye for Bree, and he's like, he's bad news... You need to watch him. They all kind of take it with a grain of salt because, yeah, look where Buck's jealousy led them. Like, it got Roger hung. But there's something to it. Like, he senses that this guy is not all good. But I think Bree and Roger are still struggling with how do we trust this man that caused so much damage to our lives? And then all of a sudden, he's looking out for us and trying to process that and make that make sense. It has to be difficult. While I think that they would like to blame themselves for not listening to Buck sooner, I don't think that it was realistic for them to just jump in both feet. Yeah, let's just trust every word he says, because that's just not human nature. Bree kind of has a lot of questions for Buck because she notices that he's not really all gung-ho to return home, and... That's kind of weird, right? You would think that for a man that has a young son and another child on the way who is desperately in love with his wife would want to go home, right? So Bree's trying to puzzle through that. But honestly, I think there are a lot of reasons that Buck doesn't want to return home right away. And honestly, I could probably go on and on for hours about all the reasons that Buck might potentially not want to go home. So we'll try to keep it to the basics. First off, He feels a lot of guilt for almost getting Roger killed and kind of feels like he owes him and wants to look out for him. Second off, it was Buck's choice to fight at Alamance that basically left them penniless and having to immigrate back to Scotland to basically beg for scraps from Morag's brother. And even though Buck is a lawyer, he's going back to Scotland to be a clerk, which is a way step down, but they have to have some sort of income to survive. Some part of Buck probably feels Morag and the kids are better off without him. And so that's another reason. It's not that he doesn't love them. It's not that he doesn't want to go back and be with them again. It's just he wonders if they would be better off without him because he's made a lot of questionable life choices and those have not worked out very well for his family. 
And then, of course, you've got his attachment to Jemmy and Mandy and Roger and Bree. He recognizes them as family just as he would his own son and wife. And now that they are kind of in crisis, he feels like he needs to be there for them and to help in any way that he can because that's his blood, whether it's a direct line or not, which it is, but way down the line. It's just kind of his instinct, I think, to protect what's his. As we're moving later on into this episode, that is kind of his motivating factor, I think. It's not that he doesn't want to go home, but there's a lot of external forces conflicting and butting heads a little bit here to make it very complicated. Jimmy and Mandy, with their scene with Buck, I think has to be one of the cutest things for this entire season. Mandy combing Buck's beard with her little Barbie brush is so cute. This is a man who absolutely terrified her peeking in the window a couple of episodes ago. And now she's looking at Brie going, Mommy, he's not scary. (laughs) And poor Brie is just like, how did he win the kids over so quickly? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's because he's genuine and he's honest and he apologized and they can sense that he has good intentions, which I would like to say is sort of foolproof, but it's not because if it was, then Jimmy would have sensed that Rob had ill intentions. That I would think would work both ways if that were the case. But I think that Buck has a good heart and that they can sense that to a degree. Plus, he has young kids of his own, so he knows how to interact with them and kind of let them get their guard down a little bit. Bree and Roger had something unique going on this episode. Um, I know that the love scene was not beloved by all, but you know what? I feel like everybody's going to have something to bitch about with Bree and Roger. Like, I'm just never going to see a day when everybody is completely happy with Bree and Roger's performance. I thought that they both knocked it out of the park. I thought that the directing, the music choices, everything were so fantastic. Their portion of the episode, despite it all, there were still complaints. So I'm just going to tell you what I thought of it. And I know that I'm not going to be able to change people's minds about it, but I really did like it. I liked the choice by the director to catch these marital looks between Roger and Brie all throughout the episode because it added humor, but it also made us understand their relationship a bit more, which was very good to have from a viewer's standpoint. Especially where Rob Cameron is concerned, he shows up unannounced and they just look at each other like, you invited him? Well, who doesn't call first? There's so much tension but hilarity at the same time with this. And then all through dinner when they're trying to like kind of kick Rob out and they keep looking sideways at each other, raising eyebrows or widening their eyes or nodding subtly, trying to communicate without verbally communicating, which is very interesting whenever we look at Bree's argument when Roger first lost his voice in season five, where she says 95% of communication is nonverbal. That's exactly what they're doing. They've learned over time to communicate with each other in a way that's very subtle and not necessarily saying it out loud, but they're in agreement on it. And it's really cool, I think, to see them vibing with each other on such a level. It really helps solidify their bond, I feel like, that they can understand each other without saying directly what they're wanting from the other person. And Rob Cameron, I mean, 
First off, he's not being genuine with why he's there. So of course he doesn't want to leave. But second off, why is he stalling if he's already gotten what he wants? As Roger learns later, he's already gone through all the letters and God knows what else in the study. Why is he stalling at this point? And then you look at the fact that he tells this sob story about his ex-wife taking their son and moving back to France, yada, yada. Getting Roger and Bree's guard down, making them feel sympathetic towards him, and then turning around and saying, hey, I'd love to take Jem to the movies with Bobby tomorrow night. Is that okay? And of course, Roger and Bree... They're thinking, oh, this poor man, he's got a son that he never sees, and he's such a good guy helping his divorced sister take care of his nephew, and so yeah, of course, you can take Jim to the movies. He'd probably really love that. Worst mistake they could have ever made because his intentions are not genuine, as they find out at the end of the episode. But he's such a fucking snake, and probably one of my most disliked characters of the entire series. At least with Blackjack and Bonnet, they make no bones about who they are. They don't try to deceive people into thinking that they're good. They just embrace their evil, so to speak. To meet somebody who's intentionally murky and hiding who they are, deceiving for their own personal gain, it makes me really mad. So I don't like Rob Cameron. <laughs> Newsflash. I don't know anybody who does once they actually see what he's up to. And it's probably only going to get worse for those of you that don't know what's coming. My favorite Roger and Bree scene of the episode was when they're outside the caravan after Buck finds his way to the kids and they're all watching TV and then Roger and Bree go outside. They're talking about Roger's process for forgiveness and saying like, hey, I got in all the punches that I need and now I understand that he's just trying to get by and he misses his family and he's genuinely a good person who just made some mistakes. They have a very good, honest conversation that two married people can have when they're alone. Not only that, but the setting, the lighting, the dialogue, everything about that scene was so unique for me. After a show's been on the air for so long, you start to feel like been there, done that, as we have a couple of times in this season. But this scene for Brie and Roger just felt so authentic and new. A conversation that they've never had before in a place that they've never had a scene before at a time of day with different lighting. It just really felt fresh. But it leads into a scene later in the night for them, which is their steamy love scene with a little Phil Collins. I actually really like this, guys. Like, I have had many of you message me complaints about one thing or another with this love scene. And you know, there comes a point where you just have to suspend disbelief about functionality and what have you and just embrace the fact that it's television. I loved the music choice. I know it wasn't exactly period accurate. There was a little bit of a disconnect there between when the song came out versus the actual timeline in the show. But I never would have noticed that. But Matt Roberts pointed it out in the official podcast. And now it's something that I know, right? But before that, I wouldn't have cared. And I still really don't care. I thought 
the coloration of the scene was really beautiful with these deep golden rods and turquoises, just so fantastic and vivid. I felt like the actual scene was steamy. I liked the little role play that they had going on where Roger's acting all possessive and Breeze being a seductress and all of this. I thought it was so crazy different from anything that we have seen Bree and Roger do up till this moment. And I felt a lot of that in this episode with their story, that it was very new and unique. And I wasn't watching anything on repeat. And I appreciate that with long running shows, that they do the extra, they put in the effort to make it flawlessly unique. So the last topic of the episode, I saved the best for last as always. With William, and I feel like this is becoming a pattern, so I don't want you to think that I'm like showing him deference or anything, but it just feels like his arc is so solid over the course of the season that it's easy to feel like his story carries the most weight and is the most exciting thing for me to talk about at the end of an episode because I really do try to ramp up what I'm talking about as we go. William had a very unique story in that... We really felt something young with him, how he was acting, the way he was speaking, the things that he was doing, the way the scene was written and choreographed was showing his youth and his naivete a little bit. Again, I think it comes down to the writing. I think it comes down to the direction. So good. Joss Agnew directed this episode and he did a phenomenal job as far as I'm concerned This episode was fantastic on so many levels, and I will break it down here in a minute. There's one scene in particular that I'm just in awe of from start to finish. Particularly with William, I think it was very important for us to see what his mindset on this whole army slash war business was before all the shit goes down with Sandy at the end of this episode. And we really do see that. We haven't seen a lot of William. It's been sparse. The stuff that we have seen has been good. We saw him for quite a bit of time with Denny and Rachel, but they weren't his familiars, you know, like they were just people that he was getting to know. Same with Ian. We saw a little bit of him joking around, showing his youth when they're talking about the Mohawk death song in 704. But there hasn't been a time yet where we had seen him with a really good friend where he wasn't like in a role of responsibility because that's kind of what we saw when he was with Henry, whenever they were drunk celebrating Henry's getting his orders. That was more family. I'll be the first to admit I act differently around my family than I do my friends. It's just the way things are. And I'm not the only one that does that. So we're seeing different sides of William through each of these episodes. And this episode is the first one where we really see the relationship that he has with Sandy, his best friend. We really start to understand William's mindset. They're standing in their staff meeting, which first off is so freaking cool because we get Burgoyne, Radiesel, Fraser, all these different famous generals that commanded the British forces during the Revolutionary War. They're all there in this one room and William and Sandy are on their staff. So they're in the room with them. But as soon as things turn serious and they have to have a little powwow about Howe's note that just came through, the younger officers get shooed out of the tent. And 
Sandy swipes a bottle of champagne and William swipes an apple for his horse, by the way, which I think is adorable because it's just something that Jamie would do. Everybody credits William's love of horses to Jamie, but we have to remember that Geneva was an amazing horsewoman as well. He gets it honest from mom and dad, his love of horses. But then we transition to this scene as they leave where Sandy shoves the champagne in his saddlebags and William is like tossing the apple and everything, being all haughty and like, oh, we're the best in the business. You know, the British army is the best in the world. He pulls his cavalry saber from its sheath tosses the apple and does this fancy twist and slices the apple in half. And Sandy's like, oh, here we go again, and just claps very unamused and sarcastic. (laughs) And he says, he's not amused, but my horse is, and goes to give him his apple. They're jesting back and forth about General Radiesel's mistress, all of this stuff that's going on. Well, it must be bad if Ms. Lind is being called to the general at this hour. You know, just being teenage boys because they are teenage boys. You just know from all of this that's happening that they have no flipping clue what they're in for. They are still of the mindset that this is all a game. They're not taking it seriously because they don't know what's about to happen and there's no way that they can prepare themselves other than to live it. And that's what happens to William in this episode. And I think that's why his story is so important this episode. From the origin of this race all the way through the episode to the finish line, he has a crazy story and he comes out a completely different person. And I think that's very vital to note moving into the rest of this season. It's why I liked his story so much this episode, because it's clear definition. It was written very well. It was acted very well and it was directed very well. Having this grand idea of what war is, William's quite upset with Richardson when he says, you're going to miss the battle because you're coming with me to be a messenger, basically, because how at this point has backed out of offering reinforcements for Burgoyne and his men, how has decided that Philadelphia is a bigger and more important objective. So he's sending his forces south to Philadelphia. Now, at this point... The American and British forces have literally been camped within a couple of miles of each other for weeks, just kind of staring each other down. The British army is suffering desertion left and right, as are the Hessians. Things are kind of in dire straits, and Burgoyne and all his brigadiers were really hoping, like, praying that Howe was going to show up any day so that they could wipe the floor with the Americans and go home. And then Howe was like, "Mm, just kidding, we're going to Philadelphia instead. So now battle is impending within the next couple of days. And Richardson and William are in theory going to ride off to New York with dispatches from Burgoyne pleading for help from General Clinton in New York City. It's a really bad situation. And while what Richardson is asking William to do is very important, William's not happy about it because he was hoping that he was going to get his first fight. And he takes that plea to General Fraser. This is where we really start to see Fraser taking William under his wing a little bit. He says, I can't fault you for your courage, foolhardy as it may be. You'll need it if you are to stay and fight. 
then he says, if that's what you really want. And of course, William's like, yes, that's what I want. Because he's glorified war in his head. He thinks it's this honorable thing to do and that he can't get any respect unless he experiences it for himself. And Fraser knows that. All the seasoned officers know that. It's so interesting because at the end of this episode, after they all come back, Burgoyne is like, we've won the day. The British army is the best in the world. And they're all toasting with champagne. And William is literally disgusted because he realizes that this wasn't an all-out victory. They didn't wipe the floor with the Americans. It wasn't a rout. A lot of good men lost their lives and they didn't even gain any ground on it. He just can't abide by this sense of celebration that's going on because it's not over. They didn't accomplish their objective. Nothing was accomplished for them. So whenever he even says to one of the Hessians, he says, well, we almost lost ground. And he said, but we won the day, you know, like that's the important thing. William can't help but think, but I lost my best friend and a lot of other good men died and we literally accomplished nothing. That's a hard pill for him to swallow and it's a wake up call. And so that's why I think that Sandy's death, as tragic as it was, as much as I saw it coming, it still hurts. (laughs) It was necessary because William needed that wake up call in his life in order to become the man that he needs to be. This is where I'm going to talk a little bit about one of my absolute jaw-dropping, like I'm in awe of scenes, which is where Sandy dies and what happens afterward. The visual and audible chaos going on in this scene really puts you in William's shoes. William is kneeling over his friend's dead body going, Sandy, Sandy, wake up. Sandy, get up. All the while, when it's on William, the camera is in and out of focus. Like it's not centered directly on Charles's face. It's in and out as William is panicking. In the midst of all this, it's not just on William's face the whole time. It's panning to William's men who are still in their line and getting shot down. It's focusing on Fraser, who's prancing his horse back and forth, shouting orders. It's flashing to the field pieces that are going off and splintering this house into a million pieces. It's all just a very visual way of projecting William's internal turmoil in that moment. It was absolutely gorgeous and so creative. It just gives me all the feels and makes me excited watching it because it's only when you hear Fraser's thundering voice come through William's fog. It's almost like his ears are ringing. And then you hear Fraser say, Lord Ellesmere, to your men. William suddenly gets a grip on himself and starts to charge into the fray with his men. And this is where a very intentional parallel that Matt Roberts wanted, so they reshot it, was added. This charge across the field where it's centered on William with his sword in hand, screaming at the top of his lungs. He wanted that visual echo of Jamie charging into the fray at Culloden, which I think absolutely is accomplished. I thought it was really good. And there's a key difference here because... William has just suffered the loss of his friend and he's got tears brimming in his eyes. I mean, Charles did such a fantastic job, man. Jamie, of course, when he was charging into the fray at Culloden was kind of resigned to die. So not quite the same emotions going through, but still a a great sense of loss and determination at the same time. I mean, this scene from start to finish, I thought it was so clever that Saratoga has two major battles. 
So you've got the Battle of Freeman's Farm, which is the one that takes place in 707. And you've got the Battle of Bemis Heights, which takes place in 708. And rather than, again, like I said, do this been there, done that, bought the t-shirt thing, we've got the Battle of Freeman's Farm from William's perspective, from the British point of view. And then you've got next episode, 708, the Battle of Bemis Heights from Jamie's point of view and from the Continental point of view. I really liked that rather than wash, rinse, repeat, we've got new life being breathed into the story because it's Outlander and there are a lot of battles and we're in the middle of the Revolutionary War with a lot of battles. So it takes a lot of patience and creative energy to come up with a way to make these things look new and feel new. I'll end this episode with talking about William's final conversation with Fraser. Because like I said, when William comes through the celebratory champagne drinking and Burgoyne's, we're the best in the world and we prevailed once again speech, and he's just not wanting to hear it because he just finished digging his best friend's grave, which by the way, I thought was a phenomenal scene as well. That scene, I think, was a pivotal moment. He's paying his respects to his friend and there are privates in the trenches digging graves that are bitching about how they have to dig in the mud, stand in the mud just to throw muddy bodies in the mud. And William says, dig deeper. And he says, but it's deep enough. And William's like, these men died honorably and we're not going to put them into shallow graves only to have them dug up and devoured in the night. Which, if I'm remembering correctly, actually happened. I don't know if it just happened in the book or if it happened in real life, but I feel like I remember reading where the graves were too shallow after one of these battles and wolves got in and dug up the bodies and devoured a bunch of them. So I feel like that was a nod to that portion of the story, but for obvious reasons, it's something that they just didn't have time to cover. But this moment where William says, no, we dig deeper, and he takes off his coat and he gets in the trenches and he digs with them. Not only did that earn him a lot of respect with his men, but it also earned him a lot of respect with his commanding officers, Fraser in particular, because he's seeing a leader. And this is something that, again, is that nature versus nurture. Matt said that he had a long talk with Charles about how there are certain moments that he wanted Jamie's influence to come through more, like on the battlefield, when his identity is stripped down to its most basic instincts, because that's when you're going to see what's in your DNA come out the most. And I felt like that was a very good way to describe what we're seeing with William. Whenever he's kind of stripped down to his most basic self is when we see Jamie coming through in him the most. So I really liked that. I thought that was an apropos description for sure. And this scene in the trenches, I feel like, is what motivates Fraser to come over and sit with William while Burgoyne's going on and on with his champagne about how amazing the British army is. Um, because he makes a comment. He says, if Burgoyne can convince us that we've won the day, then we have. <laughs> is basically what he said. He'll blow smoke up your ass all day long. And if he convinces you, then it must be true. Fraser says something very poignant to William that I think he really takes to heart. And he quotes Aeschylus when he says, they send men forth to battle, but no such men return. That is precisely what we saw on all fronts for this episode with William. 
We saw Sandy literally go into battle and not return because he was killed. But we saw William go into battle and not return the same person that he was. He's different now. He's not necessarily battle-hardened, but he's going into the rest of this war with his eyes wide open. He realizes how horrible it is, the tremendous loss of life and terrible waste it is, and how some things you do because they're your orders, but they're never going to entirely make sense. He's seeing things through the eyes of a soldier now and a man versus a boy. Next week as well, the growth continues and goes on and on. I particularly liked how after Fraser walked away, William knew the quote, but not only knew the quote, could finish the quote. They send men forth to battle, but no such men return, and home to claim their welcome come ashes in an urn. It really reminded me of your typical Jamie Fraser quoting Greek philosophers like he did in the season five finale. The camera lingers on Charles's face for a little bit. It takes a certain kind of actor to be able to handle a camera lingering on their face without dialogue. The emotion coming off of him warranted spending that extra second or two on William to see what he's going through because you can read the emotions all over his face, the struggle, the grief, the loss, the pain, and the emotional scarring for the men he killed, the the good men that he lost, like the terrible things that he just witnessed in this battle crashing down on him. And he's realized now that this isn't a game. People do die. This is what war is. With that, I think I'm going to wrap up my analysis for the day. But yeah, I really love this episode. It was one of my favorites of the season. Quote of the episode is that very Aeschylus quote we were just talking about because I felt like it was a very appropriate quote to end an episode about the cost of war because that's really what this episode was about. And then performance of the episode goes to Charles Vandervart. And I have not given a performance of the episode to him yet. Holy smokes, I couldn't believe it. After how much I've talked about how amazing he is, this is the first time I've given him a performance of the episode. He was fantastic. I've seen so much growth, not only for him as an actor, but for William as a character. And particularly in this episode, this was a big moment for William in a lot of respects. So yes, performance of the episode is Charles Vandervart. And with all of that, as always, I open it up to see what you guys had to say about this episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Marlene Morgenstern says, Have to watch a few times to get the military generals and strategy straight. I grew up in that area, but it's been decades since I studied New York State and Revolutionary War history. Really loving William the more we see him. Didn't really need an extended love scene between Roger and Bree. With all the storylines running, it takes time away from Jamie and Claire. Roger and Bree are facing a parent's worst nightmare, though. Once again, Claire kisses Jamie and sends him off to war, not knowing if he'll return. Seeing him lying unconscious on that battlefield just tears me up inside. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it wasn't surprising, but it's still not good to see Jamie possibly dying on a battlefield. I mean, we know Claire's going to save him. We got that foreshadowing in the episode, but... Yeah, that's kind of Claire's worst nightmare. Like you said, Bree and Roger are also facing their worst nightmare in having their son kidnapped and not knowing where he was, potentially being taken back to the 18th century. We just don't know. There's a lot of unknowns surrounding Rob, his motivations, where Jemmy is. I mean, Mandy and Jemmy have this connection, and now all of a sudden Mandy's saying it's gone, which 
<laughs> that's not good. So there's a lot of things. Like I can see how Matt's saying that this is like the top of the hill and then next week we go through the rest of the roller coaster. But honestly, I felt like so much happened this week that you can't even call this the top of the hill. There was a lot of momentum this week. I am enjoying these last couple of episodes just because of the historical content. So very true. It's really good. Amy Jo Patience Williams says... It was so good. I've watched it twice already and will probably watch it again. I want more. I mean, yeah, this episode was so phenomenal and fantastic. And I honestly don't have enough words to describe how amazing it is. Like I said, not only because it's Outlander, but because it's Outlander. Like it just this episode feels like OG Outlander we fell in love with. And same for 708 just feeling all the feels all the time. It's fantastic. Joan Cohen says, this was a good one. The Max were the driving force in the episode as they dealt with the repercussions of having two uninvited guests. Something is definitely in the air and it's not going to be good. Great casting choice for Buck. He's more nuanced than his character in season five. Intelligent, empathetic, and able to adjust to being out of his own time. Much like Claire. I do wonder how he ended up in the 20th century, though. Was he thinking of his own Jeremiah and somehow connected with Jemmy? I'm not surprised Roger forgave Buck, especially given his religious convictions and knowing that he's family, which means so much to Roger. I'm glad we see the continued growth in Roger and Bree's marriage with the nonverbal communication looks, playfulness in the bedroom, and some nice sexy time. I really want those teal flowered sheets. You and me both, Joan. I love those sheets. On the other hand, I just want to smack Rob. His over-the-top affability, lack of social cues, and play on their sympathies is a very calculated ploy to distract the Max from his real intent. Poor Roger, though. He's finally finding his footing in the 20th century, but he has to give up his burgeoning career to deal with a family crisis, just as he did when Mandy got sick. Girl, I know. I feel so terrible for Roger. Like, I feel like he's always the character that as soon as he gets his feet under him, the rug gets ripped out from under him and it's awful and I hate it. <laughs> okay. Um, Joan continues to say, there's a lot of nice bridges between centuries in this episode. The transition between Claire writing her letter and Brie reading it was lovely. The airplane model callback, the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and Jimmy following in Roger's footsteps with the Tufty Club were great connections to earlier seasons. William's charge across the field at Saratoga with murder in his eye was very reminiscent of Jamie doing the same at Culloden. Once again, we see a big change in his character in a short period of time. Although I thought it took too long for William to pull himself together, the shock of Sandy's death was a huge wake-up call that war isn't an idealized version of glory and heroics. It was kind of General Fraser to be a father figure towards William. He's struggling to reconcile his feelings, and we're reminded again how young he really is. Much like Jamie, his leadership qualities start to emerge when he joined his men on the grave detail. General Fraser sees something in him, but it's too bad William couldn't know at that point they were related. I did love the eyeglass scene with Jamie and Claire. We needed that bit of levity in this tension-filled episode. Yes, so many parallels between this episode and previous moments. I felt like the recitation of the Aeschylus quote at the end was very reminiscent of Rupert singing Down Among the Dead Men after Preston Pans when Angus died. There's also a moment where 
right before they find out Jemmy's missing, Roger can't sleep and he goes into his study and clicks on the light. He's going to do some work. And that reminded me a lot of in season three, episode one, where Frank is laying on the couch and he can't sleep. So he walks into his study and clicks on his light and sits down to write a letter to the reverend. I just thought there were so many callbacks to previous seasons this episode, whether we're talking about the Tufty Club or You'll Come Back to Me. There was such a sense of nostalgia with this episode. Alrighty, final quote of the episode is from Casey Filson. She says, the one where Brie and Roger are half having a heart attack at every turn. I feel so bad for them this episode. First, we have Buck, who's having his own issues, coming to the reality of where he is and who he's with. I was so angry with him at first, but then seeing the shock on his face and how mortified he was with what happened to Roger starts to turn my opinion of him. It was cute as all get out seeing Mandy brush his beard and he looked like one of the kids hanging out watching TV. Loved that scene. And then Rob Cameron turns creeper, first showing up unannounced for dinner and then getting all flirty with Brie. Ew, dude, chill. And then he was the guest that wouldn't leave. Ugh, go home already, Rob. William. Oh, how much I loved his storyline this week. He's growing up and learning and sadly not in a fun way. Rest in peace, Sandy. General Fraser was amazing in this episode. I like how he was written and the actor who plays him did so very well. I like his character a lot more now because of the visuals. And then Jamie and Claire. I love how even in the nerves of it all, Jamie still teases her and gets all flirty. My favorite line of the episode you will come back to me, James Fraser, and if you don't, I'll come looking for you. I love how she tells him he is hers and she's not letting anyone take her from him. She's given him the love and reassurance he needs to go do what he needs to, knowing no matter what happens, she has his back and will be there for him. Yes, Rob Cameron is the house guest that will not go away. He's like a flipping cockroach. And all the marital looks, all of them, like Rob Cameron sticking around like a bad head cold is just worth it for all the hilarious looks that Sophie and Rick got to exchange over the course of all of those scenes. General Fraser for me was a real win this episode. I will admit, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it after last episode because there just wasn't enough of him to draw an educated guess on how casting went. But I really feel like it was a good choice of casting, I feel like they're giving Fraser as much real estate as they possibly can, given how condensed the season is. Yeah, I like that he stepped up. He really does feel like he's a father figure a little bit for William, giving him advice, watching out for him, that sort of thing. So I like it. I like it a lot. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Sassnack Files. Make sure to join me next week for the 7A finale, Turning Points. And until then, you guys stay safe out there, and I'll chat at you later. Bye! Bye!